Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 408th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Coming at you on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world in this our ninth year from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in the Hollywood Hills in Los Angeles, California. And this is the place where entertainment and technology intersect. Great week this week. There's only two more sleeps till the Rolling Stones concert at the Rose Bowl. I love the Stones. This has got to be getting pretty close to their last tour. And so I'm really looking forward to it. It should be a big night. My interview tonight's with Londoner Brian Marcel. Now, Brian took a chance on assisting Eastern European bosses who were working, of course, behind the curtain for the um, for the Russian government. And uh, when that Iron Curtain came down, he um, set these bosses up in their own businesses. Big, big, big chance. But it paid off huge. It just goes to prove. Big ideas, big rewards. Both the public and the experts have blamed social media for a long list of mental health issues, including rising rates of depression and anxiety and suicidal behaviour among kids, not only in America but elsewhere. But is it really true You know, if you have teenage kids or if your peers are teenage kids, this really is information that you should pay attention to because it could save you a lot of grief down the line. Recent research shows that social media use doesn't appear to have a significant impact on teenagers' life satisfaction. A new study in The Lancet suggests social media is associated with mental health issues but only under certain circumstances and only for certain people. In girls, frequent social media use harmed health when it led to either cyberbullying and or inadequate sleep and exercise. But these factors didn't have the same effect on boys and the study didn't pick up on specific ways that social networks could be harming them. So it was very inconclusive. And researchers analysed data from 10,000 teenagers over three years. And they uh, talked about frequency of their social media use and their in-personal social interaction as well as other health and democratic de- demographic profiles. And in subsequent years, the teenagers provided updated information about their social media use and responded to other questions about their mental health, about their sleep habits, their physical activity, cyberbullying, and so on. In 2016, over 70% of the teens in the study said they regularly checked social media multiple times a day, and frequent social media use has been associated with decreased mental health, and well-being as measured by responses to questions about psychological distress, life satisfaction, happiness and anxiety. But interestingly, social media has a much stronger impact on girls rather than boys. Researchers found that three factors, cyberbullying, lack of sleep and lack of exercise, could almost completely predict whether frequent social media use would harm a teenage girl's well-being. And cyberbullying appeared to be the most damaging aspect to girls, followed by lack of sleep. Secondly, lying in bed all night with their phone, and then lack of exercise. Well, while these were the main concerns to girls, they only explained 12% of the relationship between social media and poor mental health in boys. There are a few reasons for this, I guess, Girls tend to be more susceptible than boys to mental health conditions such as depression and anxiety. Girls also experience more cyberbullying than boys, and girls appear to be uniquely bothered by comments about appearance and negative comparisons with others. It's perhaps more surprising that lack of rest and exercise stemming from online activity 
also didn't seem to affect boys. The discrepancy may be due to girls' reportedly frequent, more frequent use of social media. It may be that boys are not sacrificing sleep and exercise to the same extent that girls are. So the key messages to young people are, firstly, get enough sleep. Secondly, don't lose contact with your friends in real life, not just online, but in real life. And physical activity is important for mental health and well-being. So if you look after those three things, you don't have to worry about the impact of social media. The takeaway for parents of teens is similar. You should encourage teenagers to stay active and turn off their phones at night. And perhaps more importantly, you should specifically talk to them one-on-one about cyberbullying, since that seems to be a major source of harm. So rather than blackballing social media and confiscating phones and doing all that bullshit, Mm. the emphasis needs to be on talking to your kids instead. So just chat to these kids. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds, and every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technologies to subjects like Hyperloop and blockchain, um, cryptocurrency, autonomous cars and all those things. And in tomorrow's newsletter, we discuss the latest result for CRISPR technology on humans. I've been talking about this for four or five years, but it's um, about splicing the human genome using a tool called CRISPR, making it possible to think about eliminating literally thousands of diseases. And this technology is amazing. So we talk about that in tomorrow's newsletter. So the one thing you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard newsletter. And we we get letters every day from people all over the world saying that um, it's the only newsletter they read. They used to get a heap, they've scrapped them all, and now they just get mine. And to receive it, you simply go to my website, which is Bob Pritchard with a T, P-R-I-T-C-H-A-R-D dot com and subscribe. It takes you a fraction of a minute. Now, how often have you had a discussion about something, even if it's obscure, and five minutes later you receive ads for it on your laptop or your phone? Maybe I'm paranoid, but it, it seems to happen to me all the time. We were talking the other night about Botox injections. It's a procedure I've never been interested in. I've never searched Botox online or clicked an ad for it or had anything to do with it. And yet while scrolling through Facebook on the way home, there it was, an ad for Botox. Somewhere between my phone and whoever's putting up the ads, they're listening. Now, Facebook stated that its phone app doesn't listen to users in order to service ads that their ad targeting algorithm is just that good, and it obviously has ESP as well. However, the company recently admitted that human workers have been reviewing and transcribing a small portion of user audio recordings in Facebook Messenger. I'm not sure what a small portion means. It probably means a lot more to, less to them than it does to me. Um, Facebook isn't the only company that's been listening in either. According to a recent tweet, people suspect that the Safari iPhone browser is also listening in. Pretty scary. The camera and microphone access toggle for Safari, it's tucked away in privacy settings, totally separate from where you allow all other apps access. That's pretty strange in its own. In recent iOS updates, Safari's access to both your mic and camera by default. So unless you manually change the setting in order to rescind access, they can listen. They've got they can listen and they can watch. And most people probably don't even realize that Safari has access. Some web-based video conferencing tools also have a need to access your microphone and camera, and if you don't switch it off and deliberately say no, they record you visually and auditorily. So while it's not necessarily sinister for Safari to access your mic and camera, it's getting access by default, whether or not you know about it, 
And uh, that's intentional on Apple's part. They're banking on the fact that most people will simply accept the settings as they are and not, not opt out. Therefore, they are legally listening. Hmm. Recordings of Apple's Siri and similar voice-activated virtual assistants are also reviewed by human workers. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, for the purpose of improving Alexa's understanding of human speech patterns. So they say, same is true of Google Home. The truth is that any equipment that has the capability of recording audio and video has the ability to record it even when you don't want it to do so. So you should assume that either through a glitch or malware or by design that you are going to be listened to. You can also have your picture and video taken. So what can you do to protect your privacy from prying ears and eyes? Start by turning off the voice to <coughs> Oh, excuse me. Start by turning off the voice to text feature, which is how the app um, gained access in the first place. You can also revoke the app's access to your microphone and camera. So go and get out the manual re you received when you bought your device and find out how to turn off the access to your microphone and camera. Now, Facebook also has a secret conversation option, secret conversation option, that's scary on its own, that uses end-to-end -end encryption, making it impossible to transcribe voice messages. So the only way to really create off-grid conversations is to have them away from any devices with recording capabilities, smartphones included. <coughs> so... If you're having a chat and you don't want recorded or videoed, go into another room, leave all your dev devices behind. If you don't, you're in trouble or could be. This is Bob Pritchard and I'll be back with my guest, Brian Marcel, in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the past nine years, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting, to say the least, and successful business people. We've spoken to them about their exciting new initiatives, we've talked to them about their challenges, how they overcame those challenges. And what we try to do is, apart from find out about the services and products that they provide, um, we want to know how they overcame their obstacles and, and we try to ascertain what it is that makes them tick. Very few entrepreneurs are successful these days. In fact, the last figures that I saw out of Silicon Valley said that 99% fail. So 99% of all entrepreneurs now fail. And uh, so the ones that succeed, there's got to be something special about them. There's got to be something that they're doing that other people aren't doing. Now, Brian Marcel has over 35 years of hands-on high-level senior corporate and entrepreneurial experience. And he's grown the IBCS group 
from a standing start in November 1988 to the leading barcode and enterprise mobility solution in Central and Eastern Europe. Now, Brian spotted an untapped region in the former Soviet bloc. This is before the wall came down. He found some potential entrepreneurs working in state-run companies, bought them out, set them up in business with shares and finance, and best business practices. The result? Today, the IBCS Group is the number one barcode and enterprise mobility solutions company in Central and Eastern Europe. He's an interesting guy because he's also a retired magistrate, he's an author, he's interested in blockchain, as uh, we all, he's a counsellor, he's a thought leader, a golfer, a skier, a cyclist, he's a father and a husband, so that's a pretty busy plate. Now Brian's success is based on ownership, openness and trust. These are fairly unusual qualities in much of today's cutthroat marketplace. And I have Brian on the line from London. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right across the world. Oh, my goodness. That's frightening. Um, hi, Bob. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Now, what inspired you to become an entrepreneur? You know, one, one day when you were young, you walked into a bank and you heard the bank teller say, Good morning, Mr. Smith. How would you like them today in ones or tens? And you said, fuck that, not doing that. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Is that what happened? Uh, no, well, no. Um, <laughs> so actually it took me 35 years oh, okay. of life um, to get that far. Um, I started work in the stock exchange for my grandfather, who was senior partner, and I got fired after four years. Um, because I didn't really like being in an institution. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of what started me thinking that this wasn't for me, but I'll try business. So I went to the commerce, um, and that's how I learned to sell and market, and all that was good. Um, but just, you know, I, I don't really like working for other people. It doesn't sort of suit me. Yeah. And... Um, that's really what made me want to start my own business. Yeah, I understand that perfectly. I um, I don't like working for other people either. Now, <laughs> most entrepreneurs have other entrepreneurs who inspire them. So have you got entrepreneurs that are role models or people whose business philosophies you closely follow? Well, uh, Steve Jobs was one of my heroes. Absolutely. Uh, and... Um, I certainly admired him as a businessman, perhaps not so much a person, because I believe he wasn't very nice to work for. But, you know, I just love the way he joined the dots all yeah. the time, and that's how he got his inspiration. And I think my success has been down to that, because uh, in my business, I'm, I'm the guy who does the strategy, and so I've got to be the visionary. I don't, I'm not the details guy or the technical guy. Yeah. And, um, you know, sort of having to find out the latest technologies, keep abreast or ahead of everything, you you can't do it all in one day. You've got to sort of notice things as, as you pass them. And then one day they rear their head and you connect the dots and say, yeah, that's, that's where we ought to be going. Yeah, I think too many entrepreneurs today try to be too many things to everybody. Um you know, and it is difficult when you when you begin because you've got to be sort of the the creative genius and the manager and the staff hire and the accountant and the you know the lawyer and you've got to be all things in in one body unless you've got plenty of money, of course. And uh, so, I think the key is to be able to take all these disparate areas of business and and meld them into something that really works. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. I was actually lucky because um, my wife joined me on day one and she right. was very clever. Um, she had a very good outlook on things and uh, she would send me down paths that I didn't really recognize. And especially with people, you know, if I had a difficult people problem, she'd mm. show me another way of looking at it and tackling things. And um, I certainly have a message for all entrepreneurs. You must hire women. Uh, because they have a different idea on 
on business. They they trust their gut and they think that their gut. We should do more of that. Yeah, I agree. Um, and uh, so. I love having women working for me. I must say, they're very successful normally. Yeah, I'm. I'm exactly the same. I'm, I've had women um, in business around me pretty much my whole life, and uh, my the most successful part of my life, I guess, is first twenty years of being in America, coming from Australia and landing in America, and and you know being in Australia and thinking how great you are, and then coming over here and realise that this. You know, 25 million people that are twice as good as you are, it's a bit of a jolt. And uh, so I had a female business partner for about 20 years and it um, it really made a difference. And 51% of the population is female um, and they do think differently. And, uh, you know, you need to be able to take all those perspectives into account. Um, so what's, your, what's, the, what's the biggest success you've, you've had as an entrepreneur? Well, I think uh, going into Eastern Europe um, and finding a market there, and the reason I did that was because I, I had a barcode solution business in the UK in the in the 80s, and um, my main supplier, a company called Symbol Technologies, who actually, interestingly enough, invented the laser gun, the handheld terminal, and most of the hardware we see at the moment mm. in barcoding and um, they had a direct sales force and because they had a direct sales force we weren't allowed to go and see any of the blue chip companies uh, right. for the big deals Yes, and that was really irritating um, and, and this went on for a bit and I got more and more irritated so I thought well I'll go and look for new markets where nobody's ever heard of them uh, and it just seemed to me, I think it was around 1986, 87, that, uh, you know, Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were all getting down and quite cosy and saying that they could do business with each other. And uh, Gorbachev was talking about Glasnost and Perestroika, openness, that sort of thing. Mm. So I thought, well, there's a chance that the uh, Eastern Europe might open up and it's not so far away. Um, Maybe I should go out there, have a look around, see if I could find some people I could get into business with and see what happens. And uh, so it was kind of risky, really, because nobody yeah, heard of barcodes or anything in those days. That's a bold step to go into Eastern Europe at that time. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, but I think when you're an entrepreneur, you are you have to be a risk taker i mean oh there are of course degrees of risk but sure. you can't you can't be successful without taking risks and I, and I guess i took the view that i got nothing to lose and uh, it'd be rather fascinating to see these countries mm. uh, because there was you know you only read about them in books because you weren't really allowed to travel so much there oh, that's true uh, so it was quite exciting actually down the line that must have been a big financial risk to move into Eastern Europe at that time. Um, so did you have pots of money or did you? how did you address, address the um, funding issues? Well, uh, nobody's ever asked me that, actually, Bob, and that's a really good question. Um, and in my book, in fact, I do talk about it. What I did was um, my main core business in the UK was what we call film masters which are little bits of film with a barcode plotted on it right. that you give to your printer to uh, incorporate in a label that he prints on a, on a product right. um, these, uh, these had to be produced to a tremendous accuracy and so you need a special plotting machine to do that and special software and I'd actually had that developed for me, uh, and I bought in a Marconi photo plotter, and right. I put all that together. I used it internally myself, and then went out and sold it to these Eastern European countries uh, because they needed to make these film masters themselves mm. uh, to print barcodes on products to sell to the West. And uh, I made a nice tidy profit on selling 
those and they finance my business. Okay, how how open were they to doing business with um, some guy from from the UK, some guy from the West? Well, funny enough, they love guys from the West. You know, if, if you think about it, they haven't got the ex- haven't got the exposure, but they, of course they knew about the West and they knew that we were the street head of them commercially and everything else. So we were curiosity as much as they were. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, I, I hooked up mainly with the youngsters. Mind you, I was quite young in those days, believe it or not. Yeah, whatever um, happened to those days? Sorry? <laughs> whatever happened to those days? Whatever happened to those days, yeah. I, I was hoping they might come around again, actually, Bob. Well, I, but, I, uh, I hate to say this to you, but um, they're not going to... It's funny because... They're not going to... <laughs> People, I, I actually got a, a, a text this morning. I was on television back in the 50s and 60s, and I actually got a text this morning from a guy who said, are you the guy that was on television in the 60s? Um, you know, whatever happened to these people? And I'm thinking, this guy's 60 years ago, and... This guy's still thinking about it. I've forgotten about it for the last 50 years. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know what happened to those days. They were good, though. <laughs> so, yeah, so really, um, these were youngsters who were working in state-run companies, and they welcomed me, actually. Uh, it was really nice. And, of course, I showed them an opportunity, right. uh, an opportunity to move out of their horrendous current roles and uh, join something exciting it's pretty brave for them too but you're you're the as i understand it the way you went in was you um you found these people in these companies and then you financed them to into um their own well their own businesses part of your organization but um um their own businesses that's that's pretty daring and well, unusual yes. Yes, well, um, you're right. Uh, the thing is, you, you've got to take the view that if you don't trust people, uh, then there won't be mutual trust. True. And when you're living, what, a couple of thousand miles away from your business and you don't really speak the language, mm. um, you need somebody reliable to run it for you. Um, now, that person can screw you quite happily yep. you know no problem um, and so I thought the best way to overcome that was to give them the majority of shares in the company uh, and then make sure they were financed and um, had the best business practices and access to western suppliers um, and then in return they would think it was their business which it was effectively and therefore they'd be really motivated uh, to grow it. So mm. trust and ownership, basically, are the two main values that I built this on, and uh, it speaks for itself. And but I guess... Of course... Sorry. Sorry. I, I guess the reason that they um, they didn't screw you was because even though they had majority shareholding, I guess, and could, um, they needed access to the information and the technology and the the Western business attitudes. Yes, uh, but possibly they could have got that from somewhere else. Yeah. But even today, you know, I'm trying to justify my existence uh, to them. Uh, they sort of pay my salary, but, you know, I have to keep on my toes and add value. Otherwise... Yeah. Well, I'd like to think we wouldn't grow as, as much as we do, hmm. but they need to see that I, d- I do add value. Now, we hear a lot about um, life-work balance, and uh, many executives, like Sheryl Sandberg, I think is probably the first one that comes to mind, says that life-work balance is not possible. In fact, she says if you want work-life balance work for the first 35 years and then have um, live for the next 35 years and that's the only way you're going to get balance. So do you think it's possible to have life-work balance or not? 
I've got it. I mean, in fact, only last night I was at dinner with somebody who said, my God, you've got work-life balance down to an absolute T. Um, I mean, the, the, the last, I know, four days over the weekend of playing four rounds of golf. Um, and then I went off to Hungary to open our new offices there. You know, that's all in five days. Um, so that, that's a typical week for me, really. It is now. It is now, but you've been doing this for a hell of a long time. Um, how long did it take you of busting your ass before you got work-life balance? Uh, yes. Um, probably until about 15 years ago, I think. Okay, so but, uh, but, but to get your work-life balance, I think it's important not to be a control freak. You've got to delegate, yeah, and and, and once again trust your your people, and and then that will help you. Of course, you could be a total workaholic um, who feels guilty about having a work-life balance, and a lot of people do. So that's another thing they have to get over. Yeah, I don't feel guilty at all. You know. Did you did you learn that, um, or is that just your natural attitude? Um, a bit of both. I'd certainly learned it. I've been on lots of courses. I was a great fan of Tony Robbins, um, who a lot. I, I've used a lot of his tools in business. I've been to his business mastery course in Fiji, even. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, yeah, and, and then I watch other people and I see people burning themselves out um, and I, I see that they get divorced, they, they don't have a happy home life and, and you try and fight against all that and say, well, that's what happened to me and so you work out how can you put in place some kind of process where it doesn't. I mean, this didn't happen overnight. Sure. Uh, it's just a gradual thing, and but it also helps to have interests outside of work. You know, I golf, cycle, ski, family, uh, travel. You know, I have lots of interests, so it's not so difficult for me. Yeah, there's a hell of a lot of things to do out there in this world, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, where does Brian Marcel want to be in five years' time? He, uh, you've been doing this for a long time. How long are you going to keep it up for? And what do you want to do? You want to lie on a desert island somewhere and be fanned by beautiful native people <laughs> feeding you grapes and champagne? Or what's I think the, the future? I for that, Bob, was about 20 years ago. <laughs> I think I missed <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you're, you're probably right. <laughs> so, where do you want to be in five years? Um, I've, um, I was thinking of, of packing it all in and retiring up to a year or so ago mm. uh, until I bumped into blockchain. And, um, right. you know, it, it occurs to me that this is a fantastic, uh, I'm not talking about cryptos, of course, I'm talking about the underlying technology of Bitcoin um, and how it will change the world with enterprise just like it uh, barcodes did. I mean, I see Bitcoin as barcodes Mark II, as a matter of yeah. fact. So for us, it, it's a natural extension of, of what we're doing. And I just got so excited about this. Um, and every so often, I change my business model uh, because as market leaders, we have to keep ahead of technology and make sure our customers um, have their technology roadmap for three years yeah. and trust us to provide that and um, it just seemed to me this is so exciting uh, we need to get on board this so I've changed my business model now which is over the next two three four years probably and um, we're going to do blockchain as a service IOT as a service supply chain as a service do a sort of uh, subscription model and uh, I need to spend a lot of time on that um, you know, getting the vision and getting the strategy down. So that's going to take me a while. Yeah. Uh, so I just can't stop, really, at this stage. I'm hoping, though, <laughs> that once this is successful, nothing else will come along and I can kind of retire. Well, I think but, uh, 
I think blockchain, I've been talking about blockchain on this radio show for probably five years, and uh, it is going to revolution, well, it not only is going to, it is revolutionising everything now. And uh, I'm in a consortium that's working to develop a new app in the music business. And, uh, you know, guess what? It's all blockchain-based. And uh, it, it doesn't, you know, governments are switching over to it to even to pay things like um, um, welfare payments and all those things. So it's... It's really changing the world. It's a pity that, you know, 90% of the population hasn't caught on yet. Or maybe that's good or maybe it's bad. I don't know. If you're, if you're into a music app, uh, we should take this offline because I'm working with a couple of companies doing just that. So it would be interesting to exchange information. Right. Because I'm, I'm on a few advisory boards on blockchain and stuff. So um, it's a bit of a sideline. Back to the work-life balance, really. Yeah, well, it, well, except it's work again. <laughs> um, so, what's the one thing in your business that you're most proud of? What of all the things that you've achieved? What what's, what are you most proud of? Apart from still being alive and functioning, <laughs> I'm proud of all my guys. You know, I mean, they they've done amazingly. You know, it, it took seven years before we made any money. Right. Back in uh, uh, 96, 97, whatever. And, and they've just grown their businesses like Topsy every year until uh, we hit the buffers, of course, in the financial crisis sure. uh, 10 years ago, but uh, quickly recovered and, and still growing strong. So, you know, these, these, these guys work really hard and it's great. And I like to think I've had something to do with it. So, that's what I'm most proud of, and building up uh, five companies, really, of all disparate cultures, some of who used to hate each other, you yeah. know, back in history. Um, so uh, I've built this network, if you like, um, which is, looking back, you know, you can pat yourself on the back, which one doesn't do very often in business, and I think it's quite cathartic to actually do that if you can I know. Yeah. so how do you keep they're still really disparate cultures aren't they um, um, oh, yeah. but how do you keep businesses with disparate cultures that are remote from each other how do you keep them all on the same page singing from the same hymn book and how do you develop creative thinking across that sort of a structure well we we do uh, we have this kind of family ethos where it's all for one one for all sort of thing uh, so we have lots of uh, regular meetings quarterly meetings conferences annual meetings you know and they have sales meetings marketing meetings uh, all together so we're used to operating as a group and uh, learning uh, the good and the bad from each other. So uh, internal relationships between the countries are really, really good. And of course, I set a common strategy. So everybody's singing from the same hymn book, yeah. um, but can obviously tweak things locally. Because obviously the local languages are different. Some of the solutions have to be slightly different, things like that. Um, and so that, that's a great thing. And, and they just learn from each other and it's, it, it, yeah. How do you keep, how do you keep harmony between the different, you know, I, I've found in my experience with dealing with the East, that, um, the Eastern Bloc, that um, there's some pretty passionate <laughs> people amongst those, among the Eastern Bloc and, and a number of them in my experience sort of carry a chip on their shoulder. Um, how do you, maintain harmony I think they um, you know that, that they all came from the same period um, I got them all together okay every few years but I've just instilled what I like to think is my culture with them merging uh, with uh, nice things about their culture and uh, we don't really have those sort of 
issues at all. I don't think they even do internally. Mm. We, we have a really great culture. I, I think it's brilliant. Uh, and I forgot to answer the question about the, the creative thinking. And I use uh, Blue Ocean Strategy on that, amongst other things. Right. Um, I use visual planning. I use a lot of different tools. Um, and I go around them teaching them uh, these tools quite regularly um, and create a sort of culture where they think for themselves as well. Yeah. They have to criticize um, anything I come up with. They don't have to agree with things at all and often don't. So I have to be in the selling mode and try and persuade them that this is the way to go. And right. if they push back, you know, our listeners sometimes I back off. How different do the marketing and creative strategies have to be in the different countries? They don't. They could be the same. So you have and, 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 and mainly are. Okay. So there's no peculiarities to any one market that... Mm. Well, you know, we're providing solutions uh, to improve the efficiency of businesses. Yeah. And a lot of the businesses uh, are from the West. You know, they're branches of the West. Uh, so they often have a Western culture, but they see uh, the benefits uh, of what we're offering them. And uh, so we go from there, really. Yeah. I don't know where this, this popped up from, but... Um some people think that you know mega successful people and entertainers wear the same clothes every day for superstitious reasons or for some other reason um, which of course is rubbish um, we know a lot of people that are famous and um, they wear the same clothes every day so that the paparazzi won't bother them because a photo that looks exactly the same as the one you took last week isn't worth any money so that's the reason most of them do it and it, it, it actually cuts down paparazzi from here from having 20 people follow you to having none follow you <laughs> um, I wouldn't know so do you have any superstitions no I'm not a superstitious person at all having said that I won't walk under that <laughs> but, but I'll fly on Friday the 13th I'll sleep on the 13th floor um, no it's, it's just I know sportsmen and women, of course, have suspicions and they have routines they go through and all that. Um, and I sometimes think, well, hey, maybe that's something missing in my life. Perhaps I'd be more successful if I was superstitious or did these kind of routines. I don't really know. Yeah, that's no, mainly not, that's not. mainly a visualisation and um, sort of reinforcement thing. Um, I did a tour with one of your countrymen, a guy named Frank Dick, who is a, you, you may know him, he's a um, uh, sort of a motivational coach type person. And he's got, he's got clients like um, Manchester United and a number of world boxing champions and sprint champions and things. And his whole thing is about maintaining them at peak a mental um ability all the time and so they have routines so that there's sort of nothing throws out their thinking and uh, judging by the success of his clients it obviously works yeah yeah I mean that's interesting I've never really given it a thought to be honest mm. now you mention it um, yeah well you can't teach an old dog new tricks though probably no that's um, true that's true yeah. so if if you had, was giving a, a lecture and you had a bunch of budding um, entrepreneurs sitting in front of you, what would be the one or two or three things that you would tell them that are the most important um, rules they need to um, to live by? Well, I think they need to dream big and then dream bigger. Uh, they need to be really positive. Uh, it's, it's important not to have any naysayers around you, especially when you're floating ideas around. There's yep. lots and lots of people are going to tell you it's not going to work, um, and you may believe them. So that's not a good thing. So push through your ideas with, with self-confidence. I think 
95% of the world lacks self-confidence. Um, and if you have it, you're already that far ahead of everybody else. But yeah, you I agree. do need it because you're going to get so many knocks along the way. Uh, you've got to be positive enough to see the, the good side and how you're going to come out of it. Um, and it enables you to come up with the solutions to the problems. If you're negative, then you'll think you can't do it and you won't come up with the solutions and you'll just die. Yep. So, um, and then, of course, believe that anything's, in, anything's possible. I mean, everybody could do and be anybody they want to be. I mean, there are no restrictions, really. That's Only true. Yourself I think, holds you back. Yeah, I think one of the, pro one of the problems is that... Um, uh, I always say to entrepreneurs, you know, make sure you get your um, your legals and your accounting set up and all of that <coughs> in place. Your um, <coughs> excuse me, your partnership agreements, all those things, all the things that can go haywire. Um, make sure you get them in place at the start, um, and I think that's good advice. There, but the problem is the biggest naysayers in the world, the biggest dream takers in my opinion, in my experience, have been accountants and lawyers. Accountants and yep. lawyers can't wait to tell you why something won't work, can't work, how they've seen it a hundred times before, it didn't work before, so it's not going to work now. They are great at that. So you, you have this conflict. On one side, people are telling you, you've got to believe in your lawyers and your accountants. And on the other side, they're naysayers. Isn't that good news that blockchain is going to get rid of them all? Yeah, so I agree. Them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is good news. <laughs> I agree. I hate the bastards. And blockchain's cheaper. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, you make good point. Um, but in a way, you can turn it to your advantage because sometimes it's a good idea to have some some person saying hey steady on yeah um, and come up with the uh, opposite point of view um, you know then you can just listen to it and discard it uh, appropriately but the important thing as I say is not to be affected by it uh, and believe in yourself and your own ideas uh, because what do these guys know but thanks for the advice you know yeah interesting now raise the bar change the game um, Oh, your book title of a book isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah, tell me about it quickly uh, it's my life story in the barcode business uh, I wrote it as a legacy uh, for my family initially uh, but my um, my uh, editor lady who who got me going on this the uh, Nancy Erickson the book professor uh, she's uh, persuaded me to turn it more into a business book which is why it's an entrepreneurial, a primer for entrepreneurs. So at the end of each chapter, lessons learned from the, uh, that chapter, uh, what I learned and uh, what I changed, uh, even with the failures, got lots of failures in there. Yeah. And it, it is sort of a manual. You call it a primer over there. Mm. entrepreneurs they can follow it from sit to nuts but I think one of the good things about the book is it's real life stories so it's not just it's not just all theory and, and theory exactly um, so each chapter they can look back and, and, and see and identify with what's happened uh, and learn from it so I think that's why it's more interesting and it's personal I've got personal things in there I don't really sort of gloss over anything. And, um, well, I just, I hope people can benefit from it, basically. So I turned it from, okay, the barcode industry were pushing me to write my memoirs, because I've been in it from an early stage, and there aren't many of us left. And that was the inspiration. And then I'm glad I turned it more into a business book um, with the, my barcode experience in the background. Okay, great. The book is called Raise the Bar, Change the Game. It's from Brian Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, who has been my guest today on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. So, Brian, thank you very much for speaking with me from London. I really appreciate it. Now, to find more 
out about um, Brian and the book, you can go to brianmarcel.net. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, dot net. Raise the bar, change the game. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show in just a moment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 408 Bob Pritchard Straight Talking No Bullshit Business Radio Show. We're coming at you on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today from Hollywood Boulevard in the entertainment and technology capital of the world, Los Angeles, California, sitting here in the Hollywood Hills, looking out over the whole of West Los Angeles, and it's absolutely beautiful day outside, pretty warm, but lovely. Now, I've got some bad news for all you entrepreneurs that are listening to this program. Entrepreneurs never, ever become their own boss. That's what they set out to be. You became an entrepreneur so you could enjoy work-life balance, so you didn't have to answer to anyone, so you could make decisions that you know are the right ones, so you could have some flexibility in your life. But don't think you're ever your own boss. The reality is far from it. Nobody is their own boss. Everyone is someone they report to. If you're a solopreneur or a startup owner, the size of your effort usually relates to how much you earn. That makes your business your boss. It controls how many hours you work, controls the effort you put in, controls the money you get back, and it controls your level of stress. That's control. So whether you've started a business or have been planning to, having the right mindset is crucial to an entrepreneurial success. Every entrepreneur controls business affairs that include production and schedules and marketing and business strategies and all the financial aspects, deadlines, human resources, it just goes on and on. This actually brings own boss belief. But it turns out the business is the boss. It runs you in every sense of the word. You can't do anything without being responsible to the stuff that needs to be done by the business. Building a thriving business is extremely difficult. Now, that's why the failure rate for startups is in excess of 98%. So only two in 100 succeed. So that shows you that it's pretty hard. It constantly requires you giving everything you've got and then some. You very frequently jettison your sleeping schedule. You work overtime all the time and weird hours as things need to be done. You forego leisure activities You don't do important family commitments. Don't go on vacation. You don't go to the kids' sports days and things. In other words, your business is your boss. It determines what you do and when you do it. And if one boss isn't enough, customers are the soul of every business. And entrepreneurs need to offer perpetual value and satisfaction to sustain that vital relationship. So customers are also your boss. You're either serving your customers or you're out of business and you're working for another boss. So it's one or the other. For instance, a self-employed business consultant works with different clients on fulfilling their goals. Clients systematically influence their schedule and the demand for results increase. So... They control when you work, how hard you work, and when you work. Likewise, freelancers get burned from the pressure of deadlines and timeliness. All in all, you're not in control of your business, even though you're the consultant. So in this situation, coupled with the fact that customers are always right, you can only try to control things. You can never pull rank on your customers or your clients to prove you're the boss. You can never say, hey, listen, I'm the boss here. This is where we're going to do it. No, 
This is what they want done. You do it. Not often anymore do CEOs even try that with their employees now. So the majority of startups need some level of external financing. And if your business is funded by investors, then you probably know that the own boss dreams already vanished. When you work with investors, you do not only report to them, it's binding upon you that you work continuously and diligently to make sure they're duly satisfied. Working with investors is a pain in the ass. They are on the phone every five minutes. So the same thing applies when you deal with a franchise parent company, where in reality, everything disproves the owner-boss stereotype. You just don't. And the journey of every entrepreneur is full of ups and downs. The boss title of every entrepreneur is contested for by any number of others, depending on the circumstances. You know, I've been um, in a, quite a number of startups and you find yourself working round the clock. You know, there's no sort of starting at nine and knocking off at five. You start at eight or seven or six or if you're doing business around the world, it could be whatever time it is on the other side of the planet and you're still going at nine or ten o'clock at night and you're getting phone calls all the time. And uh, you just, I recently went away to um, Ecuador. I was only gone for about 10 or 12 days. And by the time I got back, the amount of work that had mounted up was just frightening. And I was working every day as best I could while I was fitting in with other things. But you just can't escape from it, even though it's your own business. So you're the founder, you're the CEO yet you're bound to constantly work to meet customers' needs, to keep investors happy, and to scale your business. And uh, until you get into a size where you can hire a whole bunch of people, you don't get to be your boss. Um, And if this means anything at all, it means you're accountable to a whole bunch of people. It was interesting that Sheryl Sandberg was talking about work-life balance and she said um, of course there's work-life balance the first 30 years it's all work and if you do well the next 30 years could be leisure that's about as close to work-life balance as you're going to get and uh, I think she's pretty much spot on so if you're an entrepreneur It's still better than working for a boss that hovers over you every five minutes of the day, but um, your life's not your own. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. You know, just get out of the way and let people who want to succeed get past you. Don't impede people. So many people don't want to bite the bullet and charge ahead that they're quite happy to impede people who want to want to succeed. You know, it's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anyone can do the ordinary. Anyone can be ordinary. And if you want to be ordinary, you're an idiot. So if you're always trying to be normal, you're always going to be really boring and you'll never know just how amazing you can be. You know, the amazing people are people who go out there, they tackle anything and everything. They believe in themselves. They bite off more than they can chew and they chew like hell. And that's how you get to be successful. That's how you get to have a phenomenal life. And it can be a phenomenal life. In the meanwhile, I hope you have a great week this week. I'm going to. Stones Thursday night. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'm broadcasting today from my wonderful hometown of Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.